0: Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for July 2018. I'm Neil Orford, and this is where we look through the recent critical care literature and talk about the articles that caught our eye. So let's start with the lower intensity end of the spectrum with an article in JAMA: uh, Effect of use of a bougie versus endotracheal tube and style it on first attempt intubation success among patients with difficult airways undergoing emergency intubation. Pretty long title. So the BEAM trial, BEAM being bougie use in emergency airway management, sets out to answer the question, does initial use of a bougie during emergency department intubation of patients with a difficult airway improve first pass intubation success rate. This single center study randomized 757 adults who underwent emergency orotracheal intubation in the emergency department with a Macintosh laryngoscope blade uh, either direct or video for respiratory arrest difficulty breathing or airway protection and they were randomized to bougie Uh, which is a 70 centimetre 15 French malleable semi-rigid single-use bougie versus no bougie. The intubating physician retrospectively decided if difficult airway characteristics were present. So what did they find? 757 enrolled, 380 were deemed a difficult airway, so that's a 50 percent retrospective difficult airway by the intubating physician. 96% were intubated with a CMAC, and so that just represents a change in practice over the last decade. The primary outcome of first intubation success defined as successful ET placement with first device passed during first laryngoscope insertion was 96% with the bougie 82% 82% with standard, absolute difference of 45%, 95% confidence intervals of 9 to 20%. For patients without a difficult airway, first pass success was 99% versus 92% and exploratory analysis suggests the bougie effect is present in several subgroups patients requiring cervical immobilization obese patients and incomplete glottic views which they defined as Cormac and Lahaine views grade 2 3 and 4 the kaplan-meier estimates of time to first intubation showed a significant difference between the groups favoring bougie and hypoxia occurred in 13 to 14% of patients and 1% of patients had esophageal intubation. So what do you make of this? The authors conclude that orotracheal intubation with stylet and and endotracheal tube lead to improved first attempt intubation success in patients with at least one difficult airway characteristic. 96% of intubations had a CMAX so this really is a study of CMAC intubation with and without a bougie uh, as a paired, you know, compared to sort of classic uh, non-video laryngoscopy. The retrospective allocation of airway status by the intubating physician is a pretty big issue uh, because the bias in the intubating physician saying it was difficult or not is clearly present but success was higher across all groups so maybe it doesn't matter And I guess finally, does it make a difference to patients if we get it in first pass or have a reduction in brief hypoxia or time to intubation? Maybe it does. Okay, so let's move on to an article in JAMA as well um, about sepsis assessment and identification in low resource settings. So this is the Sailors Collaboration Association of the Quick Sequential Organ Failure Assessment, so the QSOFA score, with excess hospital mortality in adults with suspected infection in low- and middle-income countries. So in 2016, sepsis was redefined as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. In addition, members of the Third International Consensus Definitions for Sepsis and Septic Shock, the Sepsis 3 Task Force, proposed QSOFA, a score using simple clinical criteria, to assist bedside clinicians in identifying patients with sepsis or who are likely to develop it. The final QSOFA model included three parameters a GCS of less than 15 is one point a systolic blood pressure of less than 100 is one point, and a respiratory rate greater than 22 is one point. Since then, we have learnt that QSOFA performed well for prediction of mortality in patients presenting to ED with suspected infection, but does not perform as well as SOFA score in the ICU for prediction of hospital mortality in severe sepsis. We know that conservatively there are 6 million deaths from sepsis each year. We also know that 87% of the world population live in low and middle income countries with no data on the mortality from sepsis. So what about the performance of QSOFA at predicting excess hospital mortality in patients with suspected infection in low and middle income countries? In this retrospective secondary analysis of nine diverse LMIC cohorts Bangladesh, Haiti, India, Indonesia, Myanmar, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Sri Lanka, Thailand and Vietnam 6,500 hospitalised adult patients with suspected infection were included. The HIV prevalence ranged from 2 to 47% and there was heterogeneity in infection type and overall hospital mortality was 1 to 40%. The distribution of QSOFA, 0 to 3, and 0 to 4 SERS criteria were provided. Mental status was the most frequently missing QSOFA component and white cell count was the most frequently missing SERS component. The proportion of patients who died consistently increased with higher QSOFA scores. So a score of 0 was 3% mortality, 1, 8%, 2, 16%, and 3, 30%, but not for SIRS. So 0, 5%, 1, 11%, 2, 13%, 3, 13%, 4, 12%. Amongst those with known vital status at hospital discharge, Q SOFA of 2 or 3 accounted for 62% of deaths, while 2 or more SIRs accounted for 59% of deaths. Overall, the odds ratio for hospital mortality comparing patients with high versus low or moderate score was higher for Q SOFA than for SIRs overall. There was a stepwise increase in the odds of hospital mortality comparing uh, moderate versus low and high versus low QSOFA in the combined cohort, and these incremental changes were less apparent for serves criteria. So overall, in low and middle-income countries, a QSOFA score greater than equal or two was significantly associated with increased likelihood or excess hospital death compared with a lower score, odds ratio 3.6. In addition, the Q sofa performed well across a range of countries and infective conditions malaria, dengue fever, viral hemorrhagic infection. The Q sofa performed better at predicting death. Now this is important as the Q sofa does not require lab testing like SERS, which is a crucial consideration in resource limited countries. The accompanying editorial points out the potential use and limits of this information. QSOFA was not intended to diagnose sepsis, but can it help with clinical direction? Will a low score indicate those who can go home? A high score, those who need intervention in a resource-scarce critical care environment? Or will they be used for prognostic enrichment in trials? Ultimately, can QSOFA provide a tool to help improve outcomes? Okay, let's move to the New England Journal of Medicine and kids and DKA. So what is the relationship between volume and osmolality of intravenous fluid administered to children with DKA and brain injury? We are told the incidence of neurological injury presenting a sudden decline occurs in 05 to 0.9% per episode of DKA in children. In addition, subtle neurological alterations uh, present after recovery occur. The theories to explain this include rapid IV fluid causing reduced serum osmolality and cerebral injury. Therefore, protocols have advocated slow hydration with isotonic fluid. This 13 center RCT used a 2 by 2 factorial design to compare four rehydration regimens on neurocognitive outcomes in children with DKA. So what did they do? They enrolled children with blood glucose levels greater than 16.7. The regimens were a mixture of fast which is 10 mL per kilo times 2 and 10% of body weight fluid replacement and slow 10 mL per kilo times 1, 5% body weight, insulin was the same, 0.1 unit per kilo per hour, and dextrose was added if BSL dropped uh, below 11.1 to 16.7 millimoles per liter. They enrolled 1,255 children over five years, the adherence to the regimen was excellent, 3.5% of patients had a GCS decrease below. 14, 1.6% required hyperosmolar therapy for cerebral edema, and 0.9% had clinically apparent brain injury. Most of the brain injury presented with severe acidosis and hypocapnia. The incidence of clinically apparent brain injury was higher in the slow rehydration group, but differences were not significant. There was no difference in six-month neurocognitive testing, and this did not vary with per protocol or intention-to-treat analysis. In terms of non-neurological outcomes, hypochloremic acidosis was more common in the saline and the rapid fluid groups. So overall, this study reports no difference in neurological outcomes associated with fast versus slow or iso versus hypotonic saline in children with DKA. The lowest rates of mental status decline and clinically apparent brain injury occurred in the rapid rehydration groups, but differences were not significant. These findings show A lack of causal association between rapid fluid administration and DKA-related neurological injury. However, I'm sure this is going to be debated in endocrine and paediatric circles ad nauseum. Let's stay with the New England Journal and look at restrictive versus liberal fluid therapy from major abdominal surgery published by the ANZICA Clinical Trials Network and ANZIC CTG. So does a restrictive or liberal perioperative IV fluid regimen lead to better outcomes for high-risk patients undergoing major abdominal surgery? This pragmatic international trial randomized 3,000 patients who had an increased risk of complications while undergoing major abdominal surgery to receive a restrictive IV fluid regimen during and up to 24 hours after surgery. So this group received a median IV fluid intake of 3.7 litres or a liberal IV fluid regimen during and up to 24 hours after surgery. And this group received a median IV fluid intake of 6.1 litres. So that's 3.7 versus 6.1 litres in the 24 hours during and up to after surgery. They report a primary outcome of disability free survival at one year of 81.9% in the restrictive group versus 82.3% in the liberal group, has a ratio of 1.05, 95% confidence intervals 0.88 to 1.24, p value of 0.61, so no different. Now, disability was defined as a persistent impairment in health status lasting greater than six months as measured by a score of at least 24 points on the WhoDAS questionnaire, which reflects a disability level of at least 25%, the threshold between disabled and not disabled. The WhoDAS questionnaire was completed by the patient or by a proxy if the patient was not able to complete it. Uh, They also report secondary outcomes, acute kidney injury of 8.6 versus 5.6, So that's 8.6% in the restrictive group versus 5% in the liberal group, and that is significant. Septic complications or death was no different. Surgical site infection was 16.5% in restrictive versus 13.6% in liberal, p-value 0.02. And renal replacement therapy 0.9, restrictive 0.3, liberal, p-value 0.048 but between group differences were not significant after adjustment for multiple testing and there was no difference in ICU length of stay or mechanical ventilation duration. So, overall, restrictive fluid regimen was not associated with a higher rate of disability-free survival than a liberal fluid regimen in patients at increased risk for complications during major abdominal surgery. The restrictive Fluid Regimen was associated with a higher rate of acute kidney injury. So, make of that what you will. Let's stick with the New England Journal again, we've got two more papers. Pre-Hospital Plasma During Air Medical Transport in Trauma Patients at Risk for Hemorrhagic Shock, the PAMPA study. So, this trial was designed to determine the efficacy and safety of plasma transfusion in the pre-hospital environment as compared with standard care resuscitation, which doesn't include plasma administration, in severely injured patients at risk for hemorrhagic shock. The primary outcome was 30-day mortality. It was a cluster, randomised, pragmatic, multi-centre superiority trial so they compared the admin of two units of thawed plasma to standard care resuscitation during air medical transport they included 501 patients with trauma and one episode of hypotension a systolic less than 90 and tachycardia greater than 108 or severe hypotension systolic less than 70 either before the arrival of the air medical transport or any time before arrival at the trauma centre. Air medical bases at each participating institution were assigned to the plasma group or the standard care group for one month time intervals and because of the cluster design, treatment group to which patients were assigned was based on the random assignment of the transporting base irrespective of whether a patient received plasma or standard care resuscitation at an outside hospital. The block scheme varied randomly among two-month, four-month and six-month block sizes during the period of enrolment. 82% had blunt trauma, 51% were intubated pre-hospital and 35% had pre-hospital transfusion. Primary outcome was 30-day mortality, 89 deaths occurred in the standard care group versus 53 deaths in the plasma group. After multiple imputation for 20 patients whose vital status at 30 days was unknown, that's 10 patients in each group, 30 day mortality was lower in the plasma group versus the standard care group 23.2 versus 33%. Absolute difference minus 9.8%. 95% confidence intervals minus 18.6 to minus 1, p value of 0.03. Secondary outcomes included 24-hour and in-hospital mortality, which were lower in the plasma group. The plasma group received fewer blood components and resuscitation fluid administered within 24 hours. Uh, The plasma group was associated with lower prothrombin time and there was no difference in multi-organ failure, ARDS, TRALI, infections or Teg. Pre-specified subgroups, were analysed including receipt of massive transfusion um, and receipt of four or more units of PAC cells during the first 24 hours. Overall, trauma patients who received pre hospital plasma had significantly lower mortality at 24 hours and 30 days with no increase in inflammatory mediated complications. Cool, a positive result. Lastly we have the paramedic 2 collaborators in the New England Journal of Medicine. So most of us probably don't spend a lot of time questioning the use of adrenaline in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. After all it has been standard therapy for decades. Perhaps we should. Observational studies involving more than half a million patients have reported high rates of return of spontaneous circulation ROSC, but worse neurological outcomes in patients who are treated with epinephrine or adrenaline. Trials of high versus low dose or comparison to vasopressin or placebo have not shown benefit. There is plausible mechanism of harm due to increase in myocardial oxygen demand and procoagulant effects. Given this, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, ILCOR, called for initiation of a placebo-controlled trial to establish whether epinephrine is safe and effective as a treatment for cardiac arrest. So the paramedic trial was conducted from December 2014 to October 2017. It was a multi sender randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial in five NHS ambulance services in the UK. Patients were eligible if they had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and received ALS by paramedics. They were assigned to receive IV adrenaline, one milligram, or saline placebo by the opening of a trial pack containing either agent every three to five minutes. 8,014 patients were enrolled and were well matched at baseline. The median time from call to trial drug administration was approximately 20 minutes. ROSC in pre-hospital resus phase was higher in the epinephrine group, 36-12%, as was proportion transported to hospital, 51-31%. The primary outcome was 30-day mortality, 3.2% adrenaline, 2.4% placebo, unadjusted odds ratio 1.39, p-value 0.02, number needed to treat 112. But the secondary outcomes were important. There was no evidence of significant difference between groups in survival to hospital discharge with favourable neurological outcome, 2.2 versus 1.9%. Severe neurological impairment, a score of 4 or 5 on the modified Rankin scale, was more common among survivors in the epinephrine group, 31, versus 18%. So overall, this raises a crucial question about how we conduct and analyse out-of-hospital cardiac arrest studies. What is the outcome our patients or families care most about? So overall survival irrespective of neurological outcome, that is, life at all costs, is what we currently measure, and it would appear it's better with adrenaline than placebo. But it seems unlikely that when we discuss this with patients, that's what they value the most. What about survival with good neurological outcome? This seems closer to Mark and is an important positive outcome, and we saw no difference. But what about survival with bad neurological outcome? Is this more or less important than good outcome to our patients? We don't know. We haven't asked. And there is a difference with adrenaline and placebo. So perhaps it's time to ask. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club podcast for July 2018. Come and have a look around the site. Otherwise, we'll see you next month.